The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So maybe you have been in this situation before. Someone you know, let's say maybe a friend, family member, coworker, someone like that, they come to you with a number of spiritual questions. Um, they know that you're a Christian, and you know that they're not. They would say that they are spiritual, maybe even borderlining on the side of agnosticism. They believe that there's definitely a God. They're just not quite sure whether or not God can be known. So this person starts asking you a number of spiritual questions. And when they begin, your heart kind of skips a beat, just out of excitement about the opportunity. You've heard of other people having those opportunities where somebody just comes up to them with random spiritual questions, so you're excited. And then all of a sudden, your heart skips another couple of beats out of fear that you might not know how to answer the person correctly. So you throw up that really quick, Lord, help me prayer, and then you get right back into the zone. So they begin to ask you questions about Jesus' teachings, about the resurrection, about what it means to be born again, about what it means to have a person going to hell. And, and you're answering the questions, and you're a little surprised with yourself. You're like, man, that's not bad. I didn't know those sermon outline sheets that Paul gave were this great because I'm remembering far more than I thought I ever would. So you're right about to give yourself a personal mental evangelism award when the entire situation turns around on you and the person becomes confrontational. Their tone changes from help me understand to here's why you're wrong. And then they begin to say things that are kind of like backhanded compliments, like, I wish I had your type of faith, which is usually code for, I wish I were as naive as you to believe any of this. And then they begin to list all the reasons why believing in Christianity is not only irrational, it's also unloving. I can't believe in a God who would ever send someone to hell. The Bible has been corrupted by years of abuse. Why in the world would you trust it? Or, you're saying I'm a sinner, but I'm better than most religious people. And don't argue that point, they're probably right there. So then they begin to list their excuses, their mental excuses as to why they couldn't believe. I'm too logical to believe in what you're sharing. Until I get my questions answered, I can't step out in blind faith. And besides, I'm looking for something that is a lot more wide. Christianity seems very narrow to me. That's just not who I am. And before you know it, you begin to question yourself. Do I really believe that a loving God could send people to hell? Do I really believe the claims of Christianity? Should I be asking more questions than what I'm currently asking? It's about that time that you give back your mental evangelism award. So later that day, you're reflecting on what happened and where things went wrong. And you're thinking to yourself, man, that conversation started so promising. Did I say something wrong? Could I have been more clear in how I presented something? Was, was I arrogant? I mean, what part of the conversation went wrong? So let me just pause here. Can anyone relate to any part of what I'm describing? All right, so if you have shared the gospel more than like twice, chances are you can relate to a part of what I'm describing here. And that is, there's situations that they seem like they're going great, and all of a sudden they take this turn. And while those experiences within the moment can be confusing, they're actually predictable based on Scripture. 
In our final section of John 5, Jesus tells us why some people reject him and some people reject his teachings. And for some people, their rejection is momentary. It's not a thing of them trying to be rebellious. It's just they don't understand. So whenever you present a biblical, rational case for Christ, they receive that because it's what they need to hear. But there's other people that they don't want to understand. They just want to argue. And for that person... They get upset that anyone would be settled and convinced if they are unsettled and confused. So for them, they're trying to upset you. They are trying to present things to cause you to question your faith. So in this final section, Jesus peels back the excuses and he shows us the heart issues We understand after reading this what the real issues are, and as we understand that, it helps us to discern a little bit better those who are honest seekers from those who are argumentative skeptics. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today. John's Gospel, chapter number 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5, will be in verses 40 through 47. And this morning, I am speaking on the subject of reasons for rejecting. Reasons for rejecting. Let's start in verse number 40. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do you think that I will accuse you before the Father? The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, Every single week, as we study your word, there is more truth for us to discover and more truth to apply. But God, the only way that sinks in is as your spirit guides us into truth. May we be submitted to you in this moment, and may your spirit help us understand exactly what we need to see in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. I always like to do a quick little review, if it's, especially if it's kind of like a two-part message. So here's the five-minute review of last week that set the stage for this particular text. Chapter 5 begins with Jesus going into a pagan sanitarium and healing a man who had been ill for 38 years. That wasn't the issue. The fact he chose to do that on the Sabbath was what immediately brought the Jewish religious leaders against him, saying that he had broken God's law. So in verse 17, Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. That doesn't sound like a very bold statement to us, but it was one that they took seriously. Their reply is found in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, he had not broken God's law, but he did disregard their man-made regulations. 
But that doesn't mean that they were completely off on their assessment of what Jesus just said. He was claiming to have a unique relationship with God the Father, and he was claiming equality with God. So from verse 17 all the way through the end of chapter 5, Jesus is defending his assertions. He began in this defense by calling four key witnesses to testify of his deity. We covered those last week. Here they are again quickly. There was John the Baptist. Remember, he was said by Jesus to be the greatest man who had ever lived up until that point. He was a man who was well-respected and popular among the people. He was the first accepted prophet in 400 years. So his testimony carried considerable weight. Also, the religious authorities who are now upset with Jesus had already sent a delegation to listen to John the Baptist and to ask him questions about Messiah. So in essence, he took their star witness and said, he's actually testifying on my behalf. The second of those was Jesus's miraculous works. Uh, Jesus's miracles had prompted Nicodemus one of their well-known, respected religious leaders to confess, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Chapter 3, verse 2. We also know that the crowds accepted those miraculous works, saying that these have to be from Messiah. Chapter 7, verse 31, and even Jesus' bitter enemies, the, the chief priest and the Pharisees, they already agreed that these were miraculous works, and they couldn't defend that. Chapter 11, verse 47, third witness is God the Father. If you remember, there's two places in your New Testament where God the Father testified on Jesus' behalf. One of those was at his baptism. The other time was at Jesus' time of transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. It tells us in those cases, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the fourth of those witnesses is the Old Testament scripture. Now remember, the religious leaders had been studying the Old Testament scripture for over 1,500 years. These scriptures were written hundreds of years prior to Jesus' birth, yet they spoke of how he would be born, where he would be born, and the circumstances surrounding his birth. So for Jesus to prove his point that he is God in human flesh, he used their sources, their system, their sacred text, and their previous testimony against them. He basically put them into a place where for them to reject him as Messiah, they would also have to reject what they loved and they respected the most. Now, you would think that's a solid case. No way they're going to walk away from it. And yet they did. They still didn't believe him. It's in verses 40 through 47 that he tells us why they didn't believe. Here's the first part that is in your notes this morning. First word here is unwilling. They weren't willing to believe. Read verse 40 with me again. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Their reason for rejecting was not about knowledge or facts. It was unwillingness to believe. Intellectually honest people can recognize a rational and a reasonable argument when it is presented. Imagine for just a moment a prosecuting attorney calling four expert witnesses to the stand, 
touting their credentials, calling them reliable, encouraging the jury to listen to what they have to say, and then rejecting their testimony when it disagreed with their case. That is exactly what they're doing with the four witnesses that Jesus had just called. Either witnesses are reliable and trustworthy, or either they are unreliable and they're untrustworthy. You can't have it both ways. So for this group of people, it wasn't about evidence. It wasn't about truth. It wasn't about understanding. Rather, they were at a point of having a crisis of their will. They were unwilling to agree that Jesus was right. That's the big issue that they're dealing with here. By the way, that's the same thing that happens in courtrooms all around the world to this very day. And that is, there are those times when a judge or a jury only accepts the facts that support their foregone conclusion and they cast away any competing views. It still happens to this day. Inability to believe is the result of a confused mind. And chapter 6 will show us Jesus is extremely patient with confused people. However, unwillingness to believe is the result of pride. And pride ends in destruction. So what is the next reason why they rejected Jesus? Unloving. The love of God was not in them. Now, this first phrase in verse 41, it is really interesting to me. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men. Now, that's one that we got to pause with for a moment. Because there's a whole lot of our prayers and a whole lot of our worship time that goes something like this. We give you glory God, would you be glorified in everything that's taking place today? God, we give you all the praise, all the glory. And he's saying, I do not receive glory from any man. So what does that mean? Well, here's a couple of things to think about. First, Jesus does not need human praise to validate his claims. The testimony of the Father is all-sufficient. Second thing to think about is Jesus didn't want public praise from those who privately denied him. So they, they very clearly had said they don't believe. As a result of that, if they were to come out and now say, oh, we give you praise, no, that's hypocrisy. Here's the next one. This, I love this. This is so good to me. Jesus' glory is not deficient in any way. He is still glorious whether we open our mouths or otherwise. <laughs> what I mean by that is it's not like he is leaking glory, where if we don't go through and praise him and lift him up, then somehow he is going to become deficient in his glory. He is just as glorious as he ever has been and always will be, even if we never open our mouths at all. So here's the next phrase. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Part of loving God is honoring God and seeking his glory. That's just a part of what it means to love God. So when the Father gave glory in honor to the Son, the religious crowd, if they're going to love God, would give glory and honor to the Son. 
That is a part of what it is to love the Father. And yet Jesus says in verse 43, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. This, oh, he is so good with this. He is incredible. Here's what they could, they could try to say. They could try to say, well, we didn't know you were from the Father. And he was like, mm, no, I came in my Father's name. And by the way, your religious leader had already agreed that you understood that. Remember what Nicodemus said. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. We know, not I know, we know. It, it was known to them. And then he says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He basically is saying, you cannot claim ignorance in this. You know, you've already testified that you knew I was from the Father, and you still have rejected me. And then finally, he points to their absurd acceptance of teachers who came in their own name. This is found in verse 43. They couldn't use the argument, well, we don't want to be rude, but we never accept anybody's self-testimony that they're Messiah. Because actually, history would say that during this time, they had accepted as many as 64 other false messiahs based upon their own self-testimony. According to Jewish historians, that's happened. Now, first century Jewish historian Josephus was one who noted an increase in false messiahs in the years leading up to the Jewish revolt against Rome that happened in AD 66 to AD 70. Sixty years later, another messianic pretender by the name of Simon bar appeared. Even Rabbi Akiba, the most esteemed rabbi of the time, believed bar to be the Messiah until the revolt was crushed by the Romans and brought catastrophic results to the Jews. It's not like they could say... We just don't accept anyone's testimony. That's, that's why when he says that in verse number 43, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. It's happened again and again. The issue is they were unwilling to receive Christ. So here's the next one. Why else were they rejecting? Man, you're not, this, is, this is tough. This is tough. Here it is. The word is ungodly. They were glory seekers and glory stealers. The term ungodly means immoral lives of self-obsession, lust, and pleasure. Listen to what Jesus says about them in verse number 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Here's what Jesus is basically saying. How can I be glorified as your Lord when you're too busy seeking your own glory? <laughs> People who are glory seekers are not humble enough to give glory where it is rightly due. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. They were unwilling to look at Jesus as their Savior. They were unwilling to say, we're wrong, you're right. They were unwilling to give God glory because they were excessively proud of their own religious accomplishment. you, you got to listen to this next statement. This is one you can chew on for a week or more. 
Because it's going to apply in so many areas. Here's the statement. It's not in your notes. You might want to write it off to the side. Not very big. Here it is. Pride is the unspoken appeal of religion. And personal glory is its reward. Let me say that again. Pride is the unspoken appeal of religion. And personal glory is its reward. Religion encourages people to try to make themselves right before God. Those who strive for man-made righteousness would rather reject God's grace than give up the glory they think they've received from their own efforts. That's what you're seeing here. So there is one, only one that we know of who is worthy of glory. There's only one who is worthy of that title. If you'll remember, Lucifer was the first that we know in history, biblical history, to go after God's glory. He was tired of all the praise, all the glory going to God and not coming to him. He was followed by people who erected the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. He was followed by King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. He was followed by King Herod in Acts chapter 12. And in every single one of those cases, when people went after God's glory, it always ended poorly. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah by saying, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. It is a dangerous thing to touch God's glory. To take credit for what God has done is a dangerous thing to do. To focus on making a name for yourself instead of focusing on lifting up the name of Christ is a dangerous thing to do. To live as though you're the center of God's universe as opposed to him being at the center of yours is a dangerous thing to do. When we move from reflecting God's glory to trying to receive God's glory, it is a dangerous thing on our side. Here's number four. Unbelieving. They didn't really believe Moses. Verse 45 cuts deep. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Jesus is the judge. We've already seen that in previous text. He is not the accuser. In this text, he says, Moses is your accuser. Moses is the one who brings accusations against you. Now, I cannot imagine how difficult it must have been for this religious crowd to accept the fact that their hero, their teacher, the one that they respected would somehow accuse them before the Father. In their minds, that was incomprehensible that he would ever do something like that. And yet that is exactly what Jesus is saying. Why would Moses bring any accusation against them? Here's the argument that Jesus is making. Since Moses was the writer of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, basically those books spoke of Jesus as Messiah. To reject Jesus is now to reject what Moses had written. The whole system of the law, the promises, the types, the symbolic institutions found their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. 
So on a deeper level, they also misunderstood the purpose of the law. The law was never a means of salvation. The law was given so that it would reveal God's holiness. It would reveal our sinfulness. It would reveal our inability to live up to God's standard. And it would prepare us for the grace that would come by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the law was given. A reference for that would be Galatians 3.24. So if the religious leaders rejected the truths taught by the man they received, it shouldn't surprise us that they are rejecting the truths that were taught by the man they reviled. He's saying in this situation, it's a case of unbelieving. You don't really believe what your teacher said about me. Now let's bring those pieces together. Some people are genuinely curious about Christ. And for them, that curiosity, their questions, leads them further on the path to know him as Lord and Savior. Uh, But don't be fooled. Not every spiritual question is prompted by curiosity. Sometimes spiritual questions are cloaked in rebellion. Some people ask questions simply to challenge truth rather than to understand truth. And for that person, if a Christian cannot refute their objections, then they feel vindicated, at least for a little while. Here's a couple of ways that you might know if you are playing the game of convert me if you can with a friend of yours. (laughs) That is, he or she challenges you with negative opinions about God and then expects you to talk him or her out of it. Things like, God doesn't love people or else he would end suffering. Here's another one. He or she presents a philosophical question that has no answer. A question like, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Just let that one sit with you for a while. Or, he or she presumes to judge God's goodness based on their standard of goodness. If God were really good, he would never send someone to hell. Or he or she tries to convince you that your faith is irrational and that God does not exist. Or he or she jumps topics when you begin to make headway on their first question. Or he or she becomes angry midway through the conversation and begins name-calling. You always know things have just degraded a couple of levels when now it's no longer, help me understand, it's now you're irrational. You're unloving. There's no way you should believe that. I mean, it, it just kind of, it turns at that point. So if you find yourself in that type of a conversation, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Pray and politely remove yourself from the conversation. And here's why. There's never been a single person argued into the kingdom of God. If it is not the Spirit of God who is bringing conviction in that person's heart and opening their eyes to the truths and the reality of who Jesus is and what the gospel message is, you and I could argue all day long and it's not going to do anything. The Bible says a lot about arguing with a fool. Check that one out. That's that's good times. So, Here's the next one. When someone is genuinely curious, 
There's a couple of things you can know from that as well, that, that you know this is genuine curiosity here. And that is, they ask more questions instead of challenging everything you say. They are receptive and humble. They're not argumentative and brash. They accept that there's some questions that cannot be known, and they respect it whenever you say the occasional, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that. They also know that there's going to be a conversation that will naturally lead into the gospel, and they're not trying to run from it. So, all of that being said, if you have found yourself in a place of arguing with someone who has zero desire to actually place faith in Christ, you can now see what the issues are in the heart. Or if you're sharing the gospel and there's somebody who keeps asking questions, they're inquisitive, they're humble, I cannot encourage you enough, keep sharing truth. By the way, share scripture over and over Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Scripture has a way of sitting in the spirit of a person long after your arguments are gone. So let me finish out with this thought. Today, if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, I might be in that second category. I, I think I might just argue more than what I need to. But you don't want to be in that situation. You, you want to know more. You're honest about that. I want to encourage you in this. Let us help. There's certain questions that people think are vital, that they have to know the answer to, that are not like 101 Christianity questions. That's like advanced PhD questions. There's some things that literally you need to know the basics. And as you know the basics and as you place faith in what Jesus has done, it is amazing how he begins to unlock a person's mind to be able to understand and to receive truths on deeper things. So if you're interested in this, here's my my step of encouragement for you. Take a moment before you leave. Write your name and a phone number on one of the connection cards. It's in the seat back. And just put on the back of it. I'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus. We'll get back to you on that. If you can't wait, come talk to me after the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truths that we find in Scripture. They are incredibly important. God, we recognize that you have given us more than enough evidence and substance for us to place faith in. And sometimes the question is no longer, what do we need to know, or is it true, but rather, am I willing to place faith in what Jesus has done for me? So God, we pray today that you would give us the courage to ask the deeper questions. I pray that you would give encouragement to those that they have shared their faith again and again, and they keep finding themselves in those difficult situations. And and they're almost at a point where they're saying, why do I keep doing this? Why even try? Because it always ends in an argument. Lord, I pray that you would encourage that person today. That it's not that they are that bad at sharing. It is sometimes people are that rebellious and stuck in sin. So Lord, give us the discernment to know when to share and when to say, when you're ready, come and talk to me. Lord, we love you today. In Jesus' name, amen.